Well, welcome to the third in the series. And as usual, I'm actually going to talk about next week's um, speaker before I introduce this week's eminent speaker. Um, so next week, um, we have coming in Lawrence King, um, Dr. Lawrence King from Cambridge University, who's going to be talking about yet another very different topic, which is economic genocide in the former Soviet Union. Um, and he's actually writing a book now, his third book, called Post-Communist Capitalisms, um, which is sort of a sociological account of, transition, of economic reforms in what are often known as transition economies. Um, but he doesn't think of them as transition economies. So if you want to find out why, um, come next week for his talk on economic genocide in the former Soviet Union. Um, and this week, I'm very honored um, to present um, Professor Kevin Anderson, um, who comes to us all the way from Manchester, so far up north, for those of you who are not aware, and um, has um, many um, distinct um, honors to his name, one of which I just learned about, which is that he has taken the train to China from here, so, um, and back, and back, and it was very productive. So the last person I actually knew, or I should say probably the only person I knew who did that, got appendicitis halfway there and had to deal with a hospital in a language you didn't speak. Um, so, so that'll put me off, but your, your um, example has now encouraged me. Um, okay, so um, Professor Anderson um, comes to us from Manchester and he's extremely unusual um, in that he is an engineer who's going to be talking to you today about rhetoric. Um, so, and in particular, political rhetoric um, and why it's so important in the climate change debate. Um, he has, um, so he has actually fin just finished a two-year position directing the Tyndall Center, which is the UK's leading um, academic research center on climate change. Um, so he comes here also sort of as a, a distinguished leader in, a, in the policy debate as well as in the research community. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. I'm being recorded, so I have, to, I have to stay near this mic, apparently, and I have a bit of a habit of walking around. But the only exercise you get in this job. Um, right. Actually, I quite like the idea of retitling this as about the, um, the economics of genocide. Is that what you said next week's talk? Because that's pretty much what this week's talk is really about. Um, but I hadn't thought of it like that before. Right. Um, I've called this talk Climate Change Going Beyond Dangerous. Um, and I'm, I'm making... Oh, thanks so much for that. I much appreciate it. Um, I've, I've made this assumption that um, quite a lot of you are not working on a day-to-day -day basis on climate change. So if, if there's anything that I say as I go through that, you, that is not clear, please just call out um, just, just to get me to clarify it um, as I'm going through. Because I spend most of my time talking to climate change people, so um, we'll see how that goes. And the subtitle of this is Brutal Numbers and Tenuous Hope. Brutal Numbers comes back to the economics of genocide, I think. Brutal numbers, because what the numbers I'm going to use today as an engineer, as a scientist involved in climate change, they're not attractive. They're just numbers, though. I mean, they come, they're neutral. They're just the numbers that we have. The implications of them are absolutely dire. Um, and, and I do not believe in any way in trying to spin things to make them attractive or unattractive. I don't want friends. I don't want to make enemies. I just want to say the results of our analysis as they come out, as clearly and unambiguously as possible. And the results of this work, and you can see that in the papers that myself and my colleagues have published, the most recent one in the World Society's Philosophical Transactions in January, paint a very bleak future. There are lots of people out there spinning this into lovely optimistic futures of green growth and nonsense like that. But in reality, this is not the future we're heading towards at the moment. 
And 10 years hope, brutal numbers and 10 years hope, the thread of hope is getting thinner day by day. And I'll come back to that as we go through. The science makes that really quite clear, that every day we fail on climate change, and every day, every day we do fail on climate change, do anything about it. And the situation gets worse for the following day. And this is the other approach, think of cognitive dissonance, a fancy Hipp Hippocratic um, uh, term, academic term for hypocrisy, for putting your head in the sand. And that's pretty much what we've done particularly in the Annex 1, the wealthy parts of the world, the OECD countries, for the last 20 years or so. Um, the the Rio, first Rio summit was in 1992, and since then emissions have done nothing but grow. So we've done absolutely nothing on climate change of any significance at all, other than fly around the world to conferences about it. So I'll come back to that as we go through this. So it's, this is not a, not a story of, of positive messages, but I will give some messages of hope towards the end, some things that I think that we could be doing, but we're choosing not to do. So I want to explore the void between the, the, um, the rhetoric on climate change, what we say we're doing globally, collectively, as individuals, um, and the reality of actually what you, what's, what's there when you measure it. When, what does appear to be happening? And where do we appear to be going? And I, I assume quite a lot of you work with um, international development of one sort or another. So this has absolutely central implications for you. In fact, this talk is on the DFID website or something similar to this. DFID asked me to do this talk recently. You can go to their website. There's a series of guest speakers that they have, and these slides are all available there, and you can have them anywhere. I can PDF them, send them to you. Um, but DFID and a lot of other international development people are now interested in these sets of issues um, because they have big implications for what is necessary in terms of um, international development. So a lot of people say, I work on climate change. A lot of industry people, a lot of academics, and they say, well, what do you mean by climate change? And they sort of ramble on about they're trying to improve the performance of a, a, a car engine or a jet engine or some other angel on the head of a pin type activity that has very little to do with climate change. So I think it's not unreasonable before we start to think about the issue, what's the question that we're trying to, trying to answer? As an academic, it's not an unreasonable thing to go back to your aims and your objectives. Now, I may not agree with these, uh, but these are the ones that have been set us, I think, from the international level. This is the Copenhagen Accord, which, um, although the Copenhagen Summit in, 19, in 2009, December 2009, was a bit of a damp squib, it did have some benefits in that out, what came out of it was a very clear and simple statement, at last. But the lawyers didn't get to this principally, that's why you can read it. Um, there are not too, not too much fancy punctuation, and it's fairly clear what it says, that globally we should be staying below 2 degrees temperature um, rise, and on the basis of science, and on the basis of equity. Now, these are, this is a really radical statement. I'm amazed that American lawyers didn't pick this up. Um, and although this was a voluntary agreement, if you like, the Copenhagen Agreement that came after this, a lot of countries are now signed up to this. So, the UK being one of them. So, we are signed up to keep the temperatures below a 2 degrees C rise compared to what it was before we started burning fossil fuels at the start of the Industrial Revolution. I'll come back to this 2 degrees C as we go through. But the UK and the EU have similar sorts of targets. The, U, the EU regularly has these sorts of statements about must stay less than 2 degrees C. Notice it's always must stay less or something below 2 degrees C, at or below. It's not a 50-50 chance of 2 degrees C or a 70% chance of exceeding 2 degrees C. It's not that sort of language, despite the fact when you look at the policies in detail, that's what comes out. The UK, in the Low Carbon Transition Plan, um, must rise no more than 2 degrees centigrade. So the, the question is really clear. How do we set about putting in mitigation reductions in emissions that can be reconciled with keeping below 2 degrees centigrade rise. So that's, that's the challenge for me as, a, as an academic. It's a very clear question. And I, I think we as working on climate change, we have to continue to go back to this and think if we think, it's an, think that's an appropriate aim or objective. But why 2 degrees C? Where did this number come from? 
because it's got a lot of, have you all come across this number, 2 degrees centigrade in relation to climate change? There's a lot of nods. Right, they're all nods. Right, great, that's helpful. Um, well, this is partly why, and it's a sort of post hoc um, justification for it. Yeah, scientists threaten science is all very complicated, so what they do is they put things into managerial tools, and this is one of the managerial tools. These are sets of impacts related to climate change for different temperatures. So temperatures going up on the side, and you get different suites of impacts that have been collected into these, these five bars that sort of um, sum all of the, or not all, but much of the work that's out there on what the impacts will be um, around the globe for us, for ecosystems and so forth, um, at these different temperatures. And the usual sort of infighting and battles that go on in international negotiations eventually has come up with this idea of two degrees centigrade. Two degrees C rise in temperature is the threshold between acceptable climate change Climate change that we think we can deal with, we may not want it, but overall it's, it's dealable with on a global level. And dangerous climate change, above which we think, well, that's, it gets pretty damaging. And in fact, we really should avoid that at, at all, or certainly a lot of cost, which should stay below that, that guardrail. But it's the, remember, it's the impacts that determine this two degrees centigrade. Above that, the impacts are too severe to contemplate, so we must stay below it. But that's, if you notice, 2001, and this has all been re... re um, sort of cast, looking at some of the more recent science, this is from 2009, Smith and uh, another paper by Mann, um, 2009, and what you basically notice, and this is more red, and the, the more red basically tells you the impacts occur, at, uh, greater impacts occur at those temperatures um, equivalent to before, and if you put 2 degrees C on here, you get a lot more impacts than you thought you would have got before. Now, if the raison d'etre, if your um, logic is that um, you must avoid these impacts here, above that level there, where do they lie on this one? But well, if you plot them on there, they're somewhere between about, well, that sort of range there, you know. We're well past them to maybe half a degree of warming. So pretty much we've passed most, much of the stuff that was in the two degrees C threshold. So the impacts that we said were dangerous were somewhere in that category. So if you, if you our job in universities, at least I hold to this slightly positivist view of it, that um, we should be coherent and logical. And, oh, what's the point of, what's the point of employing us? So if 2 degrees C was said to be the threshold between acceptable and dangerous impacts, surely now 2 degrees C is the threshold between dangerous and extremely dangerous impacts. And language, as Wittgenstein and many others have pointed out, is hugely important in how we see the issue. So we should no longer use 2 degrees C as this threshold between acceptable and dangerous. It's between dangerous and extremely dangerous if you want to follow the logic. Is 1 degree C the new 2 degrees C? Should we be aiming for 1 degree C? Well, we're a bit stuck there because we're pretty much at 1 degree C now. Um, but I think that does change the colour of the, the problem that we're looking at. Now I'm going to stick with two. I'm going to stick with two because it's, it's embedded in a lot of legislation. I'm, I'm staying agnostic about whether it's an appropriate target or not for today. Um, but I'm going to stick with two degrees centigrade. And anyway, one degree is pretty much out of the picture now, unless you had some, some way of sucking the CO2 out of the air. So I'm going to look at two degrees C for mitigation, and then also split it between the Annex 1 and that broadly correlates with the, non, sort of the, with the OECD countries and the non-annex one, the non-OECD countries. That's not quite a complete correlation, but it's quite a high correlation between the two. These are the terms that are used in climate change, annex one and non-annex one. KDC, annex B, and annex A. There's not much difference between them. So emission reduction targets. These are probably things you're familiar with. I hope you're familiar with them to some extent. 80% um, reduction by 2050. A large reduction by not in my term of office. So this is the sort of thing as politicians we all like. Because technology will solve the problem in 2030 or 2040. It's a big reduction by some point way out in the future. I'll be retired or dead by then. Um, and we like it as individuals, because we can carry on flying around the world and having our nice, exotic, high-carbon lifestyles. 
and we can leave it to our children to sort out and a few technologists. So we all like this. It's not just the politicians. We're all quite keen on this particular approach. But the CO2 stays in the atmosphere for 100, 200 years. So this, this talk tonight may have no impact on any of you in relation to climate change, but it will affect the climate for the next 200 years. This projector being on, the lights being on in here, and this will all affect the climate as the coal pumps into the, into the atmosphere, the coal is burnt and the CO2 goes into the atmosphere and will affect the climate for the next few hundred years. So this lecture is having an impact in one way or another. So the 2050 targets, these long-term targets, are actually meaningless because we're not worried about what happens in 2050. We can have an international agreement to just before midnight in 2049 to just not do anything for one second. And there you are, you've met your 2050 target. But you've done nothing about climate change. What matters for climate change, and the only thing that matters really significantly for the long-lived greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, and um, quite a lot of the other synthetic gases, are cumulative emissions. The emissions that build up day in, day out in the atmosphere. That's what matters. That's what correlates with temperature, even more than concentration. So it's not about long-term, meaningless, scientifically illiterate targets, despite the fact lots of scientists keep using them. It's about the cumulative emissions that build up in the atmosphere, and that completely changes the story of climate change in a direction none of us like. So you start to see reasons as to why it is that we, we don't often talk about cumulative emissions, because it changes the whole chronology, the whole time frame of climate change, from long-term gradual reductions where our kids and a few technologists will solve it in the, in the future, to, oh dear, we need to do something this afternoon. You know, urgent and radical reductions, complete shift of the time frame of climate change, if you take the science into account. Now, because I'm going to do some curves later, I'm going to quickly whip through this, but from when you're about 2 degrees C, I think most of you probably know this stuff. If we think about global temperatures, we have to know, well, how do we get to carbon budgets, cumulative values, if you like? And from there, can we say something about the emission pathways that we need to follow? So, I'm going to spot this over there, but anyway, if you have a temperature threshold, if you dial that in, if you like, I'd like to have 2 degrees C or 3 degrees C or whatever it happens to be, let's imagine 2 degrees C, some science and some modelling can tell you um, what your concentration of greenhouse gases might have to be in the atmosphere. Some more science and modelling can tell you how much you can dump in the atmosphere, how much CO2 can you put in the atmosphere over 100 years to give you 2 degrees centigrade. So you have an idea of your, your bank account budget, if you like. And then if you split that amongst countries, which is a social sciences, and how do you divide that between China, India, the UK, the US, and so forth, you can come up with a national budget, which in fact the UK has. Um, and then if you know something about the emissions from 2000 to 2011, you can then start to say something about your short, and your, you know something about your short-term projections and emissions. My guess is most of you are not going to change your behavior this evening from this talk, if at all. Um, so we know something about the short-term in terms of our emissions. We can then start to say something about global and national emission pathways. So just to look at this quickly graphically, because we'll be using a few graphs later. This is emissions up the side and uh, years out the bottom, 2000 to 2100. You can plot where we, the emissions have gone up so far, and that was September the 11th, and this particular is an old plot, but I mean, it, you find the same thing for the economic downturn. And that's what we've dumped in the atmosphere. That CO2 is in the atmosphere affecting the climate now, and we can't do anything about it as far as we know. Um, and we know something about short-term emissions out to some peak year, and we know how much we can dump in the atmosphere for 2 degrees centigrade. And there's a lot of uncertainty about this. But we know enough to give us some very clear policy guidance. So we can draw the budgets. And the gap between the different ones here is because the, the science is, there's a lot of uncertainties in the science. Like all good science, there's a lot of uncertainties in it. If it's not got uncertainties in it, it's not science. So you know that this is what the budgets look like, and there's quite a big difference between the two, but that doesn't make a big difference in terms of policy. So that's the way you come up with these sorts of curves. And these, are, these are your cumulative carbon budgets, if you like. Now, how does this scientifically um, credible approach change the whole challenge that we face, moving us away from sort of 2050 reductions um, 
you know, large 80% reduction by 2050, the sort of language we normally hear. Well, first, let's think about what, we've, what we're factoring in. What are the latest emission trends? This is a, a curve you're all familiar with. Everything about humans is like this. Plasma screen ownership. Remember football matches we go and see, how much we pay footballers, how many academics we train, how many TVs we own, how many flights we take. Everything to human beings are pretty much exponential. Population as well at the moment. So, yeah, and we're the only species that seems to be pursuing this, because anyone else, any other species, would have either died out or would be in the process of dying out. But we're sufficiently arrogant to think that we can overcome this, that we can be exponential in everything, and somehow we'll resolve this problem. Well, you know, um, a, bit of, a bit of humility might suggest that this is, this is a, a genetic cul-de-sac. You cannot, you cannot carry on doing this. So the growth in CO2 emissions over the last 100 years, this is CO2, not CO2e, if anyone's asking. Um, CO2 emissions is 2.7% up to 21, uh, up to turn of the millennium, so up to 2000. Remember 1992 was the Earth Summit in Rio, so we've talked about climate change a lot since then. So you think, well, the emissions must be going down, because we've been really concerned about this climate change issue. We had Rio, we've had numerous conferences, it's in the news regularly, climate change, but the growth rate went up. After 2000, the growth rate has gone up to 3.5% per annum. And remember, it's going up from a larger number. So it's a bigger percentage of a larger number, year on year on year, which is why it's exponential. Now, more recently, the bankers and a few other financiers have come on board and felt climate change is a serious issue and collapsed the world, well, this is the Western economies, and that's been quite beneficial from a climate change perspective. Um, I don't think they were doing it deliberately, but it's about the only time you see um, emissions come down is when something happens to the economy. That's the latest number. In fact, I think it's now 5.9%, the latest estimate. So the latest number we have is a growth rate of almost 6%, 5 to 6% per annum on a larger number, year on year. And we're supposed to be reducing our emissions dramatically. And the emissions are going up at an exponential rate, or an exponential curve, and the rate is increasing. Now, that might be a blip after the economic downturn. It may not be. But it certainly suggests that the trends in 2000 are in the 3 to 5% mark. And there's no suggestion they're going to come down if you think about it. So if we combine this failure, I think abject failure would be more appropriate, um, with the science on cumulative emissions, what does that say about this two degrees pathway that we've all merrily signed up to? Now, um, this, these next graphs are based on a paper myself and some colleagues, um, well, one colleague, I suppose, published in 2008 um, in the Royal Society Journal. And what's important here is that the earlier you peak emissions, this is broadly right, the earlier you peak emissions, emissions reach a maximum and then start to come down, the lower the rate of reduction is after that peak. Remember, you've got a set budget. You've only got a certain amount of money you can spend or carbon you can squander. So the sooner you can stop having, you know, squandering your carbon quicker, the slower will be the downturn after that on that curve. And that's quite important. So if you peaked emissions in 2015, which is where the Stur where Stern report assumed the global emissions peak in 2015. I mean, anyone who's ever visited the globe, which probably all of us have, think that's obviously completely and utterly unrealistic, but you know, it didn't stop Stern using it. And it doesn't, in fact, stop a lot of us continuing to refer to that report, which has some wonderful stuff on the economics, in my view, despite the fact that's what it's mostly criticised for. But this side of it, the emissions side, I think was really poor. Um, if we peaked in 2015, those that can, can see it, that's our emissions going up here, currently, up to a peak and then coming off. And there's a range of curves coming off that, uh, that, that peak, and that's because of the science, the cumulative budgets are uncertain. We've got a range of those from the different models and approaches out there. You also notice it doesn't go down to zero, and that's because unless you have um, compulsory euthanasia, you're going to have some people living on the planet. If people live on the planet, they'll eat food. If they eat food, you'll have carbon emissions in the, in the form of um, N2O and methane. So you cannot get away from the fact that if people want to eat, you'll get emissions. There's nothing you can do about that. If you plough the soil, you'll release um, methane in the atmosphere. 
So food will give you emissions, and there's nothing we can do to get that down to zero, as far as we're aware. You may have to reduce it, at the moment it's going up significantly. So you can't get that down to zero. And of course, every bit that's in here means you can't use it here. So if you've got a population going out into the future, every bit of emissions that comes into agriculture there stops you using, say, energy or some other part there. If you go to 2020, you notice it gets steeper and steeper because you've got the same budget. So the later you leave the peak, the faster you come down off it. But you also notice there's less lines. By 2025, there's a lot less lines. And that's because by then, quite a lot of the science models say you've already blown your budget. So only the more optimistic end of the science is it now viable. So here, you notice it's like lemmings off a cliff. It's pretty much vertical. And this is for something like a 50-50 chance of 2 degrees C. So a 50-50 chance of extremely dangerous climate change, if we could do those sorts of reduction rates. Now let's look at 2020, which is five years after Stern says it's viable. The Committee on Climate Change, the UK's semi-independent um, committee that advises the government on climate change, uses in its report 2016 as a peak. You, you can again decide whether you think that's viable. 2020, I would suggest, is pushing it about as hard as you could possibly imagine pushing it. And there's no indication at the moment 2020 will be doable, but let's imagine we could. We peak in 2020, we have to come off the curve at about 10% per annum. 10% every single year in our emissions reductions every single year. Now, if you start to split that across the poor and the richer parts of the world, that could be, could be higher for the richer parts of the world. Let's strip out deforestation from this and let's strip out food emissions from it and ask what's left for energy, which is the area I, I spend most of my time working on. Now, I'm being really optimistic about us cutting back on deforestation here and being really optimistic about what we do in terms of our food emissions. So we're not being negative, we're being quite positive about what could be achieved. We've taken those emissions out and then you say, well, what's, what's left? Well, firstly, most of the science says you've got nothing left. By 2011, by the time we take that deforestation out into the future and food emissions for a population of, say, 9 billion by 2050, we've done, the time we've done that, 13 of the 18 scenarios on, um, coming out of the science are no longer viable. You've blown the budget. So you've got to be really optimistic on the science. And then when you do plot it, you find you can have no emissions in the atmosphere by 2035 to 2045. So if you're really optimistic on the science, you've only got to 2035 to 45. To have no emissions out of your energy system. That's, no, that's not things like carbon capture and storage, because carbon capture and storage will have quite a lot of emissions still going into the atmosphere from coal. So there's a whole lot of the technologies people talk about are nowhere near zero, not even approaching it. Now, those technologies simply wouldn't fit into this sort of world. This is basically zero carbon. Your planes, your ships, your cars, your power systems, everything. So that's looking a little challenging. And that's giving you only really a very outside chance of 2 degrees C. And look at the reduction rate, 10 to 20% every single year. Now, that may or may not mean anything to you, 10 to 20%. So let's have a, a think about it. What precedence do we have for this? Well, Stern um, put, made note in his report that 1% reduction in emissions has only ever been associated with economic recession or upheaval. Quite, we've seen that more recently, so maybe we see these sort of reductions. In fact, the economic downturn saw a reduction of about 1.3% in emissions. So we have no real precedence for this. But the UK had a massive dash for gas, a big shift to gas-fired power stations, which are a lot more efficient than coal-fired power stations. The, U the um, French had a 40-fold increase in nuclear power, massive increase in about 20 years. So big shifts in both those countries to low-carbon electricity sources. They weren't done for carbon reasons, but they were done for other reasons. But huge transitions to low-carbon energy systems, or lower carbon. And yet they only had a 1% reduction in emissions in those countries. And that's because they grew. And if you factor in aviation shipping, which, which is not included in, the, um, in most of the images, well, a lot of the images around the world, it's in a memo that's attached, because somehow that, I think God deals with emissions from planes and ships. Um, so we don't factor that into the, into the analysis. We've done a lot of work on those two things. Then there's no reduction in emissions from the best example we have historically of a move to a low-carbon energy system. So it's not looking particularly good. 
And I'm not recommending this, as some people suggested before. They say I must be a communist because I'm putting this up. The collapse of the Soviet economy did achieve, if you call it achieve, 5% reduction in emissions year on year for about 10 years. So the collapse of the Soviet economy achieved somewhere between um, a half and a quarter of what we would need to do. And that was by collapsing their economy, which, um, well, you know, perhaps we've been trying that more recently. So why is this different from the, let's be polite, why is it different from the stuff that we normally hear in the news? Why is this a different analysis? We're using all the same science. The analysis I use is all the stuff from the Hadley Centre and all the main scientific bodies, same numbers, pretty much. The first thing is the growth rate to the peak. That's hugely important. How fast are emissions growing to the peak? Virtually every single scenario out there has emissions growing at 1% to 2% per annum, despite the fact that hasn't occurred for over a decade. You, know, you think, well, well, let's go back and look at the data and see if we should change it. The problem is if you change it, your policymakers don't like the results. So 1% to 2% per annum, that's what the Committee on Climate Change have assumed for global emission increase. Well, it hasn't been that since probably back in the 90s, probably the early 90s. So what on earth are we doing having such low numbers? Real numbers are probably nearer 3 or 4% per annum. The peak years, virtually every analysis out there, all the low carbon scenarios out there, have emissions peaking somewhere between 2010 and 2015 or 16. And quite a lot of them haven't peaked in the past. Now, you know, I'm an engineer and I think we can do quite a lot with engineering, but travelling back in time is one that we're still struggling with. So I don't know why it is that quite major reports are having reductions, that are having peaks in the past. And I can point to some of those, some of those very serious reports that have come out. Then the Committee on Climate Change has its peak in 2016, but that infers that, they, or that would require China and India to peak in 2017. Now, I, I recently spent some time in China, and no one in China thought that was viable, and no one in, in China had been spoken to by the British about how come, could you please peak in 2017 to help us. The rate of emission reductions coming off the top of the curve is, a, is an order of magnitude higher than what the economists want. So the economists say, you know, 3% or 4% is doable per year, and we're going into the 10s and 20%, so it's an order of magnitude different. And um, technology, everyone has a great you know, hope for technology. I, I spent my time, I left home at 16 and worked on large ships around the world, talking around the ship world on, on ships, training as a marine engineer. I later worked on the, on the oil companies in the North Sea, designing and then um, building um, oil rigs and producing oil. Um, and so I think technology can do a lot. We were, you know, we were drilling 40 miles away from the rig, under the seabed, you know, up to seven kilometres deep. So, you know, really quite impressive bits of kit. I still don't think we can do anywhere near what people are saying out there. Lots of academics, scientists in particular, but also a lot of, a lot of other policymakers think we can do these amazing, almost magical things with technology. William Hague said some time ago that engineers were to get jet engines to 100% efficiency. That says the problem of having politicians that have no understanding of science, no understanding of the second law of thermodynamics. You might get them up to 35% if you're lucky. Uh, we'll ignore that one for now. And this is very, uh, I might get lynched here, this is, I mean, this is LSE. Um, costs are meaningless, suck your economists. Not quite true. If you market economists, get rid of them, you can bring some of the others in. Um, this is a non-marginal world. These are not small changes. Market economics, neoclassical economics, your Chicago's, your Austrians, all those schools are pretty much all of them premised on marginal changes. Small adjustments in what it is that you're looking at. We're not talking about small adjustments here, we're talking about step changes. The theoretical framework for most economics says nothing about step changes. It's like using Newtonian mechanics to understand quantum mechanics. They're theoretically inappropriate. So we should not be using these inappropriate methods and tools to deal with a problem that is non-marginal. That's not to say that economics, market economics, has a place to play in particular niches, but as the major, major guiding influence for what we should be doing, it is completely and fundamentally flawed. 
but um, most people don't like saying that. So this all looks a little challenging, but this is, this is pretty much the good news, so it does slowly get worse. This. Um, so 2 degrees C looks almost impossible, and that would be always impossible, we can't do 2 degrees C. So let's think of a higher temperature then. Well, what about 4 degrees C? How about 4? Can, can we do 4? Well, if we peak emissions in 2020 and then come down off the curve at about 3.5% per annum, which will keep the economists happy, um, and that's all doable, then we can get the 4. We can have the cumulative budget in the atmosphere, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, that roughly relates to 4 degrees C or there or thereabouts. So 4 degrees C is doable. We can get there. But would we want to be there? A 4 degrees C global mean surface temperature. Remember, that? Remember the means are what's really dangerous in this stuff. People think, oh, 4 degrees C. I mean, well, if you live in Manchester, 4 degrees C sounds quite pleasant. Um, but so 4 degrees C warming. Remember, most of the ocean, most of the planet is covered in sea. And the, the uh, oceans, the water, has a very high thermal mass. So it takes a lot longer for it to warm up. So a 4 degrees C global mean temperature could well be sort of 5 or 6 on land. You'll see a higher temperature on average on land. And there's a quite nice... Um, uh, interactive model you can play with from the Hadley Centre and some other people that have fed into that. And if you look at what 4 degrees C would mean as an increase in temperature on the hottest days, then for India and for China you're talking about 6 to 8 degrees additional warming. So imagine the hot days in China and then put 6 to 8 degrees of warming on that. Could, could people cope during the hot periods in these countries? Could you go to Central Europe or even London and put 8 to 10 degrees on the heat wave we had here in 2003? You can't cool the tube. You know, no one would be going to work. No, we've chopped down, or at least immensely, we've chopped down most of our trees, so there's no transvaporation anyway. Probably they'd die at those temperatures. In New York, 10 to 12 degrees. That's the additional warming you would get on the hottest periods of the year. <clears throat> but more worryingly, from a, from a development point of view, at low latitudes, you'd see a 40% reduction in some of the staple crops. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty around this stuff. You know, let's not pretend these numbers are precise. They're, they're accurate, but not precise. They're the sort of ballpark changes you expect to see. There are no analogues across Africa for these sort of temperature changes. So we, we don't know, we can't go and look somewhere else to try and find these things. And all of that occurs at the same time the population heads towards 9 billion by 2050. So 4 degrees C doesn't look particularly pleasant. Um, and from polling scientists, which I do quite regularly, whenever I go to meetings I ask them about these sort of things, and the impression I've been left with quite clearly, and Brian Hoskins, the major climate scientist on the Committee for Climate Change, would, would I think endorse this pretty much completely, that 4 degrees C is incompatible with an organised global community, if that's what we have today. Um, it's likely beyond what we would normally think of as adaptation, something that was done in an organised fashion, not just chaos as we all reach for a Kalashnikov. Um, most ecosystems probably are not going to survive that. We get new ecosystems, but the ones we have, ecosystems evolve and change all the time. But they don't normally change this rapidly. This is like a meteorite hitting the earth. We've got new ecosystems after that, but is that what we want to be? Is that what we want our behaviours to be, a meteorite hitting the earth? And the more worryingly, 4 degrees C, our ballpark, so 75% of the scientists I talk to say it's unlikely that you would hold at 4 degrees C. If you've got the 4, the feedback mechanisms that are there, some people call them tipping points, but discontinuities and so forth in the system, means the temperature would keep going up, 4, 5, 6, 7, and it would stabilise at some new temperature much higher. So 4 degrees C looks like it would be an interim temperature that you would go through. And some of the modelling from the Hadley Centre, the ones with the higher carbon cycle feedbacks, say this could be as early as 20, 2050, 2060, this temperature, 4 degrees C. The International Energy Agency had 2035, but I can't find out where they got that from. But I think what you can conclude from this, that we should avoid 4 degrees C at all costs, literally at all costs. And we should not go there. So um, you then start to think, well, what does that mean, and what do we have to do for 2 degrees C? 
Well, it gets worse. For, see, certainly for us in wealthy countries, or the wealthy people around the world, not just the wealthy ones in the wealthy countries. Let's now split the emissions between the non-OECD and the OECD. This is a paper that we published um, in January of this year. And another, another curve. Let's use one, one of the curves from it. What we asked here, a lot of people talk about apportionment. How do you apportion emissions between poor people and rich people and so forth? Well, to be honest, when you get to this late in the, in the day, it's to forget your apportionment regimes. You're not bothered about fairness. You're just, you're just worried about practicality. So we've lost the opportunity to think about it in a nice, neat way, despite the fact lots of people are still doing that. So we said, well, what, what, do we, what could we imagine the non-Annex 1 countries doing? The absolute most, if, if they were really persuaded it was a good idea, or they persuaded themselves that it was a good idea, what could they do? Um, this is the current economic downturn, a little bit there. If they grew at 3.5% per annum, which is way less than they're growing today, so if they could grow much, much lower emissions than they're growing now, if they could peak by 2025, I didn't find anyone in China by one person who works in energy and climate change that thinks that's viable. Which everyone else is going to be 2030, if not later. If they could come down off the curve at 7% per annum, twice that the Stern says is possible with economic growth. So this is a bit challenging. Even the Americans would say, well, we are pushing the non-Act 1 countries here. And then you say, what's left for the Annex 1 countries? What's left for us? Well, that. Yeah. And actually, that's 2010. So we have got to suck the stuff out of the air. There's nothing left. You've used up the budget there for about, well, that's a thing about, depending on you look at these things, around about 40% chance of staying below, um, 40% chance of exceeding 2 degrees C. So there's nothing left for us. So it starts to say, well, what do you think about this? This is much more challenging than we're normally told. Part of the reason it's more challenging is to remember the Committee on Climate Change and many of the good people working on integrated assessment models have the peak for these countries way down here in about 2017. So when you put a bit of reality, a bit of context into this, you get a completely different story. So that's us coming out at an infinite rate, which even good engineers would struggle with. Now this is, this is too optimistic, I would suggest. So this is not good news. Let's have, I'm going to have a quick focus on China. I went through the India bit. And I'm just using this because I had a lot of discussions in China with people who work on energy and climate change. Just to think about China's emissions. Now China currently have about a quarter, 25% of the world's CO2 emissions, about 7.5 gigatons, a billion tons, that is. Their growth rate has been 10.5% per annum, GDP growth rate, for a long time, well over a decade. And economists told us right back in the 90s that couldn't carry on. Well, it's carrying on at the moment. Economists tell us now it can't carry on. Well, maybe they're right. Eventually they will be. Um, but, you know, very high growth rates. India, same emissions as Japan, 6% global emissions and growing at 7.5% per annum. And I've no idea how their economy is growing at 7.5%. It looks much more unstructured and chaotic than the, than the Chinese one. But both these economies are doing phenomenally well in terms of growth rates. Faster growth rates than occurred during much of the Industrial Revolution. So we don't have many historical precedents for this rate of GDP growth. Can this continue? Well, Beijing and Shanghai have roughly the same GDP per capita as the OECD average. Roughly, for Beijing and Shanghai. Beijing and Shanghai collectively have about two-thirds of the world's, of the UK's population. And so they're big cities. They're much bigger than cities here. So about two-thirds of the UK's population live in two cities in Japan, in, in China. There are 200 million Chinese that earn less than $1.25 a day. These are market exchange rate numbers. I'm sorry, I couldn't find the PPP numbers. So 200 million. That's about half the population of the EU. Something like that, anyway. There are 350 million Chinese on 10 to $20 a day. The Chinese GDP per capita, market exchange rate version, is 5% of that of the GDP. Remember, it's the same in Shanghai and Beijing, but the average for the country is 5% of GDP of, um, uh, um, of, of the OECD. If you look at India, it's only 2%. If you look at the um, Indian GDP per capita, this is purchasing power parity, it's one-third of that for China. The reason I'm putting these numbers up there is to say there's massive growth scope for growth 
of mean income in China before, their emission, before their, um, the costs of their productivity start going up and we cannot buy so much of their stuff. So there's huge scope for low-wage industrialization still. There's no reason I, I, I can envisage the why this should dramatically change the pathway that we've seen. This is often the argument, oh, well, they all want to start getting paid like we are. Well, there's a hell of a lot of people there not getting paid anywhere near it. And that's before you put India on there, and then maybe possibly even Africa. If China follows its five-year plan, and it's very good at following its five-year plan, its 12th five-year plan, then its emissions in 2020 will be about um, half of the total global emissions of CO2 now. And there's almost no reason to think it will do anything other than that. So by 2020, when emissions will be rocketing off the curve, really, China will represent 50% of global emissions. Compared with today, I mean, it would be much more if everyone else gets their emissions down. Now, I'm not trying to blame the Chinese in the slightest. About a third of their emissions relate to what they flog to us, like my laptop, for instance. So, um, you know, I'm not blaming the Chinese, I'm just going to put the numbers in there. Now, if they carried on to 2030, their emissions in 2030 would be the same as the world today. Now, by 2030, a lot of other things could have changed. But, you know, it's, it's viable possible. Are these numbers reasonable? Were the Chinese energy and climate change community I spoke to said, yes, they thought they were reasonable. They thought emissions would peak in 2030 in China and then plateau, not come down. The minimum growth rate to peak, they thought, would be 7%. One person said it could be as low as 5 Remember, I'm assuming 3.5% here. The maximum post-peak reduction was 35 to 5% in keeping with the economists. Um, are these absolute numbers reasonable? Well, the Chinese seem to think so. But I couldn't find any Western models out there, so let's assume the Western modelers and the scenario builders imply that they're not. Look at the Western models that we build. We don't take care of China at all. We almost don't think it exists. Or India. Let's add in India, and I'm just going to whip through these ones. We're going through these ones here. But just the, uh, if you sum the two of them together. Oh, back. Emissions in 2020 are very likely to be somewhere about two-thirds of the total global emissions at the moment for India and China, and just those two countries. They're going to peak somewhere about 2030, maybe come earlier, but not much earlier. The Indians think much later than that. And they represent, I think it's about 35% of the global figure, um, population figure by 2020. That could be, yeah, I think it's 35. Um, about 5% of uh, OECD income by 2020, includes um, India in there, and the GDP growth rate might be 9% if you combine the two. So this is just a very different way of thinking about the, the future. This doesn't look too unreasonable from the Indian Chinese perspective. It doesn't fit at all with our analysis over here on climate change. Does all this matter? Well, I would say that our scenarios are taking almost no account of India and China, and repeatedly take no account of India and China. Um, uh, system has spoken about these things before, and I think my first, first impressions are that these numbers are a game, game changer. They fundamentally change what it is we need to think about in terms of climate change. So this two degree C number we keep hearing about, it seems like a sort of, it's like a creed, it's something we can't question. And that does appear to be the case to me, who work, I work on this, this number all the time, um, almost every day, I think about two degrees C as they're walking to work. Um, this is from the AVOID project, a statement from there, we, um, I think it was 2009 given, uh, during the Copenhagen uh, meeting in, in Denmark. It's possible to restrict, two degrees, to restrict warming to two degrees C or less with a 50% probability. Where do, they, where do they think they're coming from when they sort of say these things? This is the Committee on Climate Change. For two degrees C, the UK needs to cut emissions by 80% by 2050. The good news is that reductions of that side are possible without sacrificing the benefits of economic growth and rising prosperity. Well, maybe if your name's Harry Potter, but I think the rest of us would struggle to see how you can reconcile these. I cannot see how you can come up with statements like that and justify them against the context of the world that we live in. And remember, this is policy guidance, and I have a huge amount of respect for the CCC. 
There's no other organisation like that, like that globally that's advising government. We have cumulative budgets in the UK, not just endpoint targets. We're way ahead in setting the, the rhetorical umbrella, if you like, for climate change. So all credit to them. But statements like that, I think, are hugely misleading. This is the Adam project. A low stabilisation of 400 ppmv CO2e, that's lower than we are today, can be achieved at moderate cost with a high likelihood of achieving this goal. I mean, this is a different world from the one I live in. I just don't understand it. And I've discussed it a lot with these people. We use the same science. This is, this is our response in our paper from reading the same science. Difficult to visit anything other than the planned economic recession from being compatible with stabilisation at or below 650. In other words, at or below 4 degrees C. So even for 4 degrees C, you need to have rapid reductions in emissions now. And that's the latest one, just a um, more recent paper, saying if we, if we went to the peaking dates that everyone else used in 2015, 2016, then you'd have to prolonged austerity for Annex 1 countries. Well, maybe we're going to that anyway. Um, and you'd have a rapid transition away from development patterns for non-Annex 1 countries. These are radical differences to the others. So why is it they're so different? Why from the same science, you know, the Avoid project, done by a lot of people in the Hadley Centre, we're using their Hadley Centre data. So why is it that these are so different? Well, to summarise that part, Firstly, the recent historical missions in all the models we can look at there, all those ones I referred to then, they are somewhere between mistaken and massage, and you can take your own view as to how you want to view that. You know, one to two percent per annum growth rate is not, is not responsible when we're growing at, at three, four, five, or six percent, and they should actually be factored into the models. They have a short-term um, growth is, um, is, is downplayed for the next few years. They assume it's going to remain very low. They have a Machiavellian or dangerously misleading um, peak date, 2015. I mean, something back in 2005, the peak date. Um, the reductions are universally dictated by economists. They, you know, they keep referring to the word as feasible. The first Committee on Climate Change report has the word feasible 12 times in the report. Yeah. And they mean feasible, economically feasible. It won't worry the economists too much. The rest of it, the science stuff, is completely infeasible. Emissions floors are poorly accounted for, the food part, but that's not the fault, you know, that's because it's a relatively new area, it's quite difficult to deal with. So there's no one to blame for that, I mean, this is just the, just the nature of, uh, of how we learn. Geoengineering um, is what, that's sucking the CO2 out of the air or shoving sulfates in the atmosphere and reflecting sunlight or some other uh, Dr. Strange love approach. Um, this, the geoengineering approaches are widespread in the low carbon scenarios. We can find virtually no low carbon scenarios that do not include large parts of geoengineering in there, things we have never been able to do before. Now, that's not to say we couldn't do them, but they're just embedded in the models as if, of course, we can do it. Now, if the odd one had it in, fine, but they've all got it in, pretty much. And the Annex 1, non-Annex 1 emissions split is neglected or hidden. It occurred in 2006. The Annex 1 emissions became lower than the non-Annex 1 emissions for CO2 in 2006. There are major models out there that produced after 2006, some of the ones that are reported to the US um, Climate Change Science Programme, that had said that the emissions would switch between the two, somewhere between 2019, I think it was, and 2023. It occurred in 2006. So why is it that we're actually, you know, we're, we're, we're reliving history? It's a bit like 1984. You just write the history to make it convenient. And there's great assumptions about technologies, the whiz-bang technologies. I mean, the politicians are very well-versed in Latin, know nothing about it. And us engineers are saying we can do all sorts of things that gives us some sort of budget to play with. In reality, big technologies are not going to solve the problem for you. We cannot deliver them fast enough. The non-Annex 1 countries' technology is much more important than supply technologies. In the, in the Annex 1 countries, the wealthy parts of the world, we're not going to be building 30 nuclear power stations in the UK by 2020. We might have one. But we're not going to go anywhere near the sort of styles of change that we need. And we have a magician's view of time. We think that the bull can go into the china shop and then come back out. And, you know, and the crop can go back together. There's no, no assumption, no, no understanding of entropy in the way we look at these sets of issues. And we think that things are linear. There's no threshold issues. 
So it fits very well with the economic view of it, I suppose. So that's why we have different conclusions. And you can decide whether they're important or not. Now, this is all, this is all very despairing, depressing news. So um, a lot of the work that I and my colleagues have done has actually been looking, what can you do? And that's sort of been pushed aside more recently as we sort of go through these sort of talks of doom and gloom. So we're trying to go back now to look at some of the work and say, what can we do and revisit it? But this is just some, some potted ideas of what you might consider doing that could at least point us in the sort of right direction. Have we got the agency? Have we got the, the facility for us to change what's going on in a level that's broader than keeping with two degrees C or something near it? Just to put some changes on, the, on this non-marginal adjustment we'd need. We need about 10% um, reduction in emissions year on year. That's a sort of global level. We really could do with a bit above that for the Annex 1 countries, the wealthy part. But that's a 40% reduction in emissions by 2015 in the next four years. Not three years. 70% reduction by 2020. 70% reduction in our emissions. And particularly for the Annex 1 countries, no emissions basically by 2030. From, from energy at least, if not from other sectors. So that's the sort of challenge we're, we're trying to meet. Not the sort of numbers you normally hear. And remember, a lot of the numbers you hear from the EU are premised on the idea we can buy out the emissions, effectively offset them by getting the Ghanaians to make the changes for us, or the Nigerians. So what you see other numbers for the UK and the EU, bear in mind when you look at those, a lot of that is purchased, those reductions from elsewhere. Now, they're impossible, so we get told. Well, we're in 2011. We're, 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 the boat's gone. You know, we're starting the dockside, looking at the thing disappearing over the horizon. So, yeah, they are impossible, so we keep getting told. But then living at 4 degrees C is also impossible. So the future is impossible. As academics, that's great, because we get a blank sheet of paper and say, what are we going to do about this then? We haven't got a clue. And that's true. We have no precedence for understanding this world. So whatever happens, the future is impossible. And it's our job to be more innovative about this. The first bit of agency is equity. And this is, I think it's interesting. I have to be quite careful about this. You, you may have got gathered that I'm a... I try to do my work very carefully, very neutrally, but I am... Okay, I'm a fully paid-up, lefty, liberal, woolly-type, you know, Westerner. Um, so I was worried about this at first. Is this, is this me just trying to move things in my direction? But actually, when you play with the numbers, I don't think it is. Is there a method of hope and equity? There are, oh, and, the, yeah, and the second one is technology, which I'm more familiar with. But let's go through the first one. And it's some work I'm doing at the moment. So this is some provisional numbers. And we've got more behind this now. There's little chance. Um, of changing policies that are going to affect 6.85 billion people's emissions. It, it's nearer 7, it's pretty much on 7 billion now, isn't it? Last, is it 7 billion last few days? So 7 billion. You see the slides are a few days old. Um, uh, so what can we do about the people who are emitting? Well, Vilfredo Pareto, well known in, in the LSE, I would think, good old Italian, Italian, Italian economist. But as an engineer, we, we used to call this rule of thumb before I knew it was an Italian's idea. Um, the 80-20 rule. 80% of something is in, related to 20% of those involved. And it holds for lots of things in, in life. It's just a rule of thumb, and you should never take these things too far. But actually, when you start looking at emissions, it works really well. If you muck around with emissions data, 80% of the emissions come from about 20% of the population. That's not a great surprise, to be honest. And in fact, I think it may be higher than that, that, that ratio. It may be, you know, maybe more than 80% more than from the 20%, but we're looking at more detail. Can you run that three times? Is that reasonable? Again, in our provisional work on this, it doesn't seem unreasonable to run that idea three times. So you then look at within the 20%, do the 80-20 again, and then do it again. And then you get 50% of the world's emissions come from 1% of the population. It's a much smaller group of people you've got to um, deal with if you look at it like that. And that, again, seems to hold quite well. Now, it might be 40% and 3%, or it might be 60% and 2%. 
But it gives you an idea that emissions come from a very small group of people. And every time we shave, if you're a bloke, you, you see one of the people in the mirror. So we know who they are. Or well, those of us in this room. If you're putting your makeup on or shaving, you'll see the person involved. So who's in the 1%? Well, every climate scientist. I can't think of any I've come across that are not there. Any journalist, pontificator, or denialist as they leap around the world on their planes. Any, any academic in the OECD, and probably any academic pretty much around the world, will put themselves in that 1% or somewhere approaching it. Anyone who gets in the plane once a year? Anyone been in the plane in the last year? No one. It's an amazing audience. Anyone been in the plane in the last year? Very, very few people have been on planes. Or is it a bit of cognitive dissonance? They've forgotten it. Anyone been on more than once? Oh, only a few. Twice? Three times? Four times? I think there may be people not being fully honest here. Um, and for the UK, anyone earning over 30k, and if you're on 30,000 pounds a year, and if you're an academic, if you're doing your PhD, your MSc, you're aiming to earn over 30,000 pounds a year. That's your aspiration. And we're all aspiring to get in the 1% as fast as we possibly can. So it's all quite worrying, isn't it? Everything is pointing in the wrong direction here. We know where the 1% is, and it's us. Are we, principally in the Annex One countries, but also probably 300 million very wealthy Chinese and a whole lot of in wealthy Indians as well, and other wealthy people in other poor parts of the world? the wealthy ones in the world, are we prepared to have, or, um, either voluntarily or with force on us, substantial personal sacrifices in terms of how we live our lives in the short term? Are we prepared to have those things? Are we prepared to, to walk home tonight, not fly back to see our family, not to go on holiday um, in the traditional ways of leaping on planes, cut back on the you know, washing machines and all the other things that we do, not wash our clothes too often, not shower every day, which we shower once a week, years ago. Um, are we prepared to do those things? And I think the answer is probably in now, but without the W. So we're not, are we? So what we're saying is we're prepared to live with 4 degrees C and we don't really care if the poor people in the world really suffer from that. That's why it's a development issue. We all laugh at these sorts of things, but the repercussions for this are people will die. Large numbers of, of poor people around the globe will die because we've said no. So it's not, and we can do that with the numbers. Sounds, I do get quite passionate about it and I get criticised for that, but the numbers say this and we should be honest about it. We should, we do not care about other cultures a long way away from us because we don't. We can pretend we do, we can send a bit of aid occasionally and pop over there and try and do something, but we don't really care. So I think there's a real worry that we've not actually started to address the implications of what it is we're doing in our lives. And equity, thinking about what the 1% needs to do, could actually mean that we have some purchase on who we have to get to change. And if we could do that, we recognise it's us, it's a small number of people that have to make changes to their lives. And the argument that's usually made about this is that, well, all the Chinese want to have fridges as well. Well, just do the maths on that. Take the mode emitter in China, have them grow their emissions at 10% per annum, and always the modes grow at less than the averages of countries. Have them grow at 10% per annum per year in their emissions, and then look when the emissions matter, and they don't. Not for a long time into the future, by which time, if you haven't got decarbonised power systems, it's too late anyway. So the mode emitters buying fridges do not matter. It only really matters about the wealthy. Us. So the next bit is technical efficiency. Is there a message of hope in technical efficiency? Well, let's have a look at the electrical system. Um, these are compact fluorescent light bulbs here. I think most of them. So these are already moving in the right direction. They won't be. There were some fluorescent halogen things. Um, so if you want some light, these kinds of light bulbs here, they're probably about 500 watts. You need some electricity. Um, you need a transmission and distribution network. You need um, a power station. You need some Venezuelans to rip up their countryside and have an open cast pit for us and a, and a port and some train lines and ferry banks for ships bringing the coal over. Let's put some numbers on that. If you want 10 units of useful light, then you have to put in something like 50 units of energy into that system. 
You can do this with, do this with fridges and for cars and other things as well. You're going to lose something like 8%, maybe 9% in your transmission and distribution network. Most of it in the distribution, the low voltage network around your city. That's where most of the losses are. Your power stations are rubbish. Our power stations are rubbish. They're, they're constrained again by thermodynamics. And they're going to be somewhere between 35 and 55% efficient. And you can't really get them much higher than 55%. Um, not within the second law of thermodynamics. Only if you have them um, open cycle and use combined heat and power. But, but you're talking about sort of 35 to 55% efficient. And you've got to get the stuff out of the ground. So someone's got to dig the stuff out of the ground for you. So you start to think, well, why are we spending so much time worrying about this? Turn the lights off when you leave, when you leave a room and you save a huge amount. Change, your, change the number of light bulbs you have or how many you know, type of light fittings you have, the wattage of the light bulbs, and you save a huge amount here. One unit saved there is 13 here. Yet we don't, we don't think about this. It. It's the demand side. It's what we do day in, day out has a dramatic change on the system. And we can do that really quickly. Most things, fridges, eight years from now, pretty much all the fridges will be replaced. Cars is the same. One thing after another on the demand side, within eight-year cycles, if not shorter for things like toasters, you swap out. You swap out the more efficient ones, which have almost no price premium anyway, um, and you dramatically reduce your emissions. There is huge scope there if the policymakers get off their backside and actually start to um, show some leadership. So the demand opportunities dwarf the supply opportunities. And this, is, this one here is for cars. Now, there's no, efficient, there's no rebound here. In other words, if you make cars more efficient, the fuel, get, the, distance, the distance you travel for a certain amount of money gets uh, cheaper, and you therefore drive further. So I'm not including any rebound here. And actually, in Annex 1 countries, that's not uncommon. We're not seeing big increases in the driving in the UK, vehicle kilometres, UK, Germany, France as well, I think. So in the UK, our emissions, if you go out and buy a car now from the forecourt, it's, it's um, going to be about 150 grams. That's the new cars that you would buy on average grams of carbon per kilometre. The average car driving past here will be about 175 grams, probably slightly lower because in London it's a bit wealthier, but um, something like that, 175 grams of carbon. The EU, radical EU, is coming up with an idea by 2015, it's about 130 grams, it's got to be the fleet mean. But if you're Beckham, if you're wealthy, if you're us, you can, we, can, we can still drive four-wheel drives, you don't have to worry about it, we can still have them, because we, we're about to buy, pay for having a more polluting car, and someone else will have to compensate for that elsewhere. So that's 130 grams. But in 2008, this slide was in 2010, but actually in 2008, BMW um, produced a 3 Series, 160 horsepower, fast. One of my um, neighbours has one of these. Um, it's the sort of things that blokes, it seems to be blokes like, bloke, certain types of blokes like anyway. You know, it's a fast looking car, it zooms along the roads really quickly, except it's normally stuck in a queue with all the other cars. But anyway, um, it, they think it's just something about their status and their prowess in various departments. But um, that's the sort of thing that a lot of people like. Yeah, look at that, 109 grams. They can have all their status, uh, 109 grams. Now, my, my friend's got one of these. I said, what happens when you um, drive it fast? There's other terms he uses, but anyway, drive it fast. And he says he drops about 50-odd miles per gallon. Now, that's phenomenally good for a car going really quick around the Peter Street, which is where I live. But most of the time, he's getting 70-odd miles to the gallon out of a BMW. If you go to Skoda's, in 2008, again, Skoda BW, 85 to 99 grams. The new Kia is £9,500, seven-year warranty on it, and it, come, it may not, you know, Clarkson may not like it, but then I don't like Clarkson. Um, you know, it comes in at probably something like um, 85 to 80, 80 to 85 grams of carbon per kilometre. These cars are available now. They're not hybrids. These are normal internal combustion engine cars. Diesel's pretty much um, all of these, um, with some slight stop-start technology and some common rail high-pressure high um, engines. But nothing fancy in them. We can do this now, no price premium. The A2 from Audi came out in 1998 with 75 grams per kilometre. In eight years, 90% of the kilometres travelled by cars will be travelled by cars that are under eight years old. 
So in the next eight years, you can dramatically change that. Now you can, of course, adjust that with a scrappage scheme or some other scheme. So you can make that faster if you wanted to, if policies want to do it. So if, in fact, you just had a policy that said, next year, the only cars you can sell in the UK are 110 grams per kilometre, and we're going to improve that at 3 to 5% per annum, which is sort of normal improvement rate, then you'd see 50% reduction in CO2 emissions from the UK's car fleet by 2020. That's no new technologies, no hybrids, no electricity, just bog-standard diesel cars with all the sorts of stuff you see in most cars today. If you then say, let's reverse the occupancy trend, there's about 1.3 people per car at the moment. It used to be about 1.5, 10, I think slightly, maybe nearer 15 years ago now. Then you can see um, about 70% reduction by 2020 if you find some policies to get to slightly reverse the occupancy. Remember, most cars have got four or five seats in them. They just wander around with 1.3 people in them. Um, so 70% reduction, that goes back to the figure before. That's the sort of number we're talking about, 70%. There's a lot we can do with existing technology and with changing the sorts of ways we live our lives, but not radically changing them. Now, we'll have to change some other parts of our lives very significantly. I mentioned earlier things like showering. I, I increasingly get annoyed with this, because I know people that shower twice a day where I work. You work on climate change and you shower twice a day. When I was a kid, we, washed once, we had a bath once a week and I shared the water. My mum got in it, then me, then my brother in the same water. Once, and we didn't wonder around and think, well, everyone stinks. Now, people are showering every day, now twice a day, and they're power showers people get into. Absolutely ridiculous means you're washing your clothes a lot more often. We're embedding a whole set of completely obscure behaviours and practices, and we're normalising them. You laugh at someone if you think, oh, you only wash twice a week, and you stink. You know, don't stink the perfume, maybe. But, um, so there's a lot that can be done. So to conclude, if you take fairly conservative assumptions, if you assume the science is broadly right, and I think science is broadly right on this, if you assume the non as one countries, India, China, and the poor parts of the world, compete by 2025 to 2030, that is challenging, but I think doable. If there are rapid rates in, um, in reductions of emissions from deforestation, which I've not talked about, but we've done quite a bit, well, I've done some work on that, um, and there, there, are, there are moves in that direction, but it's much higher than people traditionally have thought. If you could halve food emissions from where they are today, and remember they're going completely the opposite way, everyone's trying to eat more meat and get more and more like us in the West. If there are no tipping points, discontinuities out there that, that mean that the planet, if you like, takes over, um, and if the economists are right and you can have a, you know, we can get a three and a half, maybe four percent per annum reduction rate in emissions after a peak, then two degrees C, two degrees C stabilisation is virtually impossible. So we can't do it, even if we follow all of those sets of assumptions. And four degrees C looks likely, and it could be much earlier than people thought. It's not looking at like the 2100 time scale. The more bits you do on climate, the more it appears that these things tend to be turn are turning out to be earlier. That, which actually, in some respects, is quite. It's quite good from a political perspective because that brings us to the time frames we can all start to recognise. Most of you will be here. Some of you, I know, have hair like my colour, and you're unlikely to be here in 2050. We're unlikely to be here in 2050, yeah, unless there's a bit of stem cell improvement. Um, but many of you here will be here in 2050, and you'll certainly be here in 2040 and 2030. So these are time frames that we're all going to be living through, and our kids will be living through. And if we're heading towards four degrees C, the implications for the wealthy parts of the world, we're not going to be insulated from it. There'll be all sorts of repercussions of that sort of world. So where does this leave us? Well, some time ago, my colleague um, Alice said, and we were told at the time we couldn't, we couldn't say this, it came out in the press the following year, um, we, should, we should mitigate for two degrees C, reduce emissions aiming at two, and plan for a four degrees C rise. So the adaptation community, the development community, should think about much higher temperatures. Because it we looks like we're going to fail at two. But she pointed out recently that actually we've got the worst of all worlds. What we're doing is we're mitigating for four degrees C, we're reducing emissions for a much higher temperature, but we're only planning for two. 
So most of the people I know working on development issues are not thinking about dramatic changes to the places where they're, you know, where they're involved with, that they are involved with. And the implications for that are severe. You might put in a sewage system into a new town or city, or a slightly older town or city, but if that sewage system becomes inundated with seawater in 2030, 2040, 2050, you'd have much higher risks of all the diseases that get associated with that, you know, cholera, typhoid, and so forth. So you've got a whole set of things that we're putting in train here that maybe give you good quick returns, but really bad for the poorer parts of the world later on. So it's maladaptation. We're heading to the worst of all worlds. This is not meant to be overly depressing. It sounds like it probably, but it's, a, it's not meant to be a message of futility. There are things that we can do. It's supposed to be a wake-up call. Take off the rose-tinted spectacles that we've been wearing for the last 20 years and just start to look at what's out there. Do a bare assessment of where we are today. And if we know where we are today, we can then start to think, what do we need to do? If we don't know where we are today, if we pretend we're not where we are today, then we're not going to do anything of any use at all. So my job is simply just to say it is warts and all. And that's what I'll try to do um, tonight. Message of hope here. This is from Robert Ungar. I use this, use this quote repeatedly. Um, I really like it. I think it captures a lot of things, but for universities, it's great. At every level, the obstacle to transforming the world is that we lack the clarity and we lack the imagination to conceive that it could be different. Clarity and imagination. What is the job of universities, other than it appears to me doing lots of admin? But other than the admin, it is about clarity and imagination. It's about research. It's about thinking the unthinkable. It's about thinking differently. And that's our job to think differently. That's far too upbeat a message. So I'll just finish off with this one. Um, this was me up until three years ago, three and a half years ago now. I've now moved. Um, I lived on my own in a stone, stone terrace in the Peak District. It was a three-bedroom, it wasn't a massive terrace, it was a nice terrace, three-bedroom house. I now live in a two-bedroom flat. Don't feel sorry for me, it's a very nice flat, but I've deliberately downsized. But it's still a lovely flat, and if I lived in Bangladesh, I'd have about 30 other people living in there with me. So I'm still living a completely profligate lifestyle. People heat their gardens in the UK, patio heaters. They heat, sit outside pubs in November having a pint underneath a heater. Absolute madness when we're trying to deal with climate change. People have, I wouldn't ask them about halogen light bulbs, usually the same people that fly actually, it seems to me. But the, um, the halogen light bulbs in kitchens, there's one bulb, they're worse than Edison light bulbs from you know, well over 100 years ago. You never have one, you have a whole set of the damn things. You know, they're a disaster for, for emissions. We put two tonnes of four-wheel drive car to transport 70 kilograms of useless flesh three miles to pick up a newspaper. And what on earth are we playing at? And then we drive our kids to school because they might be hit by one of those people on the way. We think it's reasonable for business tycoons to have private jets. Private jets? What sort of world are we living in? Academics flying to climate change conferences. <laughs> it's funny, but remember what we're talking about. It's quite sad, isn't it? as well, really, what we're, what we're doing. But it's okay, because we've got musicians coming the other way, going to climate change concerts to sing about, you know. So we've got numerous of those sort of things going on. And Madonna's climate carbon footprint is probably about as low as Al Gore's. Um, we celebrate the excesses of celebrities. Just go to the station and look at the magazines in the station. I spend a lot of my time in train stations. Just look at the magazines, not the top ones, the ones below those. Um, and it's just full of how can we consume more, consuming more monthly, yeah, excess consumption weekly. There's nothing in there about people trying to live frugal lifestyles, and if they are, they'll be completely laughed by everyone else. What eccentric nutter. Yeah. Most of the people around the globe, of course, are living low-emission, low low-consumption lifestyles. Most of that 6.7 billion people are doing that, and we're laughing at them. Whilst we post these ridiculous magazines that all aspire to live these stupid lives, watching ridiculous programmes that celebrate these sort of excesses, and we're trying to, trying to deal with climate change. That's fine if we dealt with all these issues, then we can live that sort of lifestyle. 
It's a hedonistic lifestyle. That's fine if you deal with the problems. These problems are absolutely severe, and that we're actually holding those two together. Severe problems with this hedonistic consumption attitude. We think we've got a right to fly and drive when and wherever we want. Year-round strawberries, hen parties in Prague, birthdays in Barcelona. Someone I knew recently said that he's having a stag do in Hawaii. Hawaii. Him and his mates are going to Hawaii for a week for a stag do. You used to go down the pub with your friends. I, I've got friends who got married, and we, we, I've, I've got rock climbing. We've been out for a walk in the hills. No, Hawaii. <laughs> Double door refrigerators and home cinemas. Second home. I won't ask anyone who's got a second home here. Second homes in a world with 7 billion people. Second homes, two cars, three TVs, and 9 billion people moving up towards that level on the planet. And we think that technology can solve the problem for us. It's time we, we sort of got real and start to look at the scale of the challenge that we've set ourselves. It's no one else's fault, it's our fault. But set ourselves and, and start to be a bit more honest about it. And then we might start to come up with some more innovative solutions about making the impossible future possible. Um, and I think you'd be pleased to know that was it. Right, thanks very much. I'm happy to take any, uh, well, what I, would, what I really like is that anyone's put some massive hole in the, in the argument, because I actually hope all this is wrong. I mean, what you really want in climate science is to actually someone to show you that you've made a big mistake. So, but any other questions as well? No. Yeah, um, yeah, certainly from time to time I do. And I used to get a bit more involved with the previous administration, slightly less with this one. And I suppose because there's lots of reasons, but there'll be lots of other concerns that worry about the economy. Um, but yes, we do get to discuss this sort of thing. And in fact, I, was, I gave a talk at um, UCL here on, um, on Tuesday. And I made the point there that um, I've got a, political, a very senior political science friend. He said, we can't say this sort of thing to policymakers. He said, you can't tell them these sorts of messages. So I've been told by political scientists that we as academics should be really careful about who we speak to. Um, I know one of the chief scientists particularly well, but I know one or two of the chief scientists, and I was told by the government, some of these government chief scientists is that I can't say this sort of thing to my minister. I can't tell them this sort of thing. Um, Ed Miliband was the Secretary of State um, for the Department of Energy and Climate Change, and I met him the day before he went to Copenhagen. I had 20 minutes just me and him um, over a drink in, uh, in uh, Manchester. Um, and he said, I can't go to Copenhagen and tell him this sort of stuff. So we've got the, climate, we've got the political scientists saying we can't tell the, tell, tell the chief scientists. The chief scientists are saying we can't tell the ministers. And the ministers are saying we can't bring this up in international negotiations. So there's a whole set of... Uh, I keep using Chinese whispers, what we used to call them. I'm sure there's a more, there's a more correct British whispers, civil service whispers. But you know, we're, all, we're all trying to spin the message to make it acceptable to the next tier up. So I try and relay this. But whilst I'm doing this, there are a whole load of people like me, academics, giving much more rosy views of this. And if you sit into them over a pint, they'll say, well, I know it's not true. So there are real issues about trying to get this across to the, to the policymakers. But yeah, I, I speak to them relatively regularly. Um, and yeah, I know this message is getting picked up quite regularly. We, we publish things in there, things like um, uh, parliamentary brief, parliamentary review. We send briefing notes around MPs, so we do get engaged. We are the 1%, and we are the policymakers. I, I really do believe this. I do believe in democracy. 
At least, and I don't think we should impose it all around the world, but for culturally, for those countries that have it, I think it probably works quite well. But we are the elite. We are the policymakers. We know people in policy. We, we guide the people in policy. We're the wealthy ones. They're all our friends and neighbours. So we are the policymakers. So I have my view on this, and I have colleagues that completely disagree with this. We should be showing some leadership in what we do. And then over time, what you do is that, that mobilises a, a, sort of, um, uh, a sort of power for change, if you like, by people like us, the influential ones, we're not going to fight our ways day to day just trying to survive. We live quite easy, comfortable lives. When we start to change what we're doing and push other people around us to do the same thing, and I think quite quickly you get a sea change. I think you would get a sea change in how policy saw this. So I don't like to see the idea as the policymakers over there who need to change. They're part of us. We're all part of that system, and we need to change. And I think the climate change community should have led this a long time ago. We are completely profligate, and I hold us significantly to blame for why its policymakers are not engaged so much. So I think we are to, I mean, I don't blame the policymakers for this. I probably blame the, the journalists most of all, the public for being apathetic and looking at any excuse to do nothing, um, and the scientists, the climate scientists, for not really showing leadership their, from their own lifestyles. Oddly enough, I was listening to, I had a debate with him on uh, the Jeremy Vine show about six months ago. You can still get the clip. It's quite a long, it's about half an hour, actually, given to it. Um, Lawson's group and people like him are quite different. There are two types of uh, sceptics, as they're often called. And actually, I think it's a, it's a odd term, because if scientists aren't sceptical, then they're not scientists. Scientists have to be sceptical. So I don't like, we don't really like the term climate science, sceptics. But anyway, there's this, this other group out there. There are two types. Hmm? Well, uh, Lawson isn't. That's why there are two types. Let's call them deny. There are two types. Ones that say the world's 6,000 years old and God will solve it. Well, maybe they're right. Let's hope they are. Um, and dinosaurs never existed. But that group, I think, is very hard to deal with. And I don't, I, we don't have many of them in the UK. They're very influential in the States. So it'll be interesting what happens with, with the forthcoming elections in the States. But they're not that influential in Europe. The other group are those like Nigel Lawson, who have some... Um, there's some... There's some cognition to their arguments. They are, they are, the, I disagree with them, but I think there is a set of logical arguments that they're putting together. I happen to think there are faults in the arguments, and this is discussions I've had with, with him. Um, but principally, my view is that they, they are looking at a 2 degree C world, and I think that they have some case there. I think they're wrong, but their view is that we can probably live with 2 degrees C, and we, probably can, we won't have to worry about it. They think the economic benefits that the world will get from increased economic growth can outweigh the impacts of 2 degrees C. Now, I think they're probably wrong, and that's partly because the impacts are looking worse for 2 degrees C than we previously thought. But that's not an unreasoned position. But we're not going to 2 degrees C. So I partly make the argument that, again, us as climate scientists, because we've hoodwinked ourselves and everyone else for so long that we've got some rose-tinted view of the future that we're going to solve these problems, therefore that adds legitimacy to Lawson's arguments. If we said we're heading towards 4 degrees C, and I've asked him this directly and can't get an answer off him, what do you think about 4 degrees C? Do you think your economic benefits are going to outweigh those sort of impacts? And basically the answer, of course, is no. But he, won't, he doesn't get asked that question. He doesn't get asked it very often, because most of the scientists are saying, no, no, we can hold to 2 degrees C. So if we were more honest, I think it would undermine the arguments of people like Lawson. So there are two types, the deniers and, if you like, the sceptics. And the sceptics have some, some uh, cognitive sets of arguments. Um, reasoned arguments. I think they're, say, wrong, but I don't think they're that wrong. Um, but if we went to 4 degrees C world, they fundamentally fall apart. Thank you. 
So that's the difference in myself and people like Lawson. He would disagree with some of the science, but most of the skeptics have not argued with the basic science of climate change. They've argued with the impact side. So if those of you are aware of the IPCC reports, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, the major, the first reports, I'm sure they made on the first report, the science report, virtually none of the skeptical arguments have been about the science report. There's virtually nothing that criticizes the science, which is, it's complicated with not much more no-level physics, really. What they criticise are a lot of the impact side and the economic analysis, and that's much more challenging to actually to, to, to do anyway. But it's interesting that even people like Lawson don't really criticise the science. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think we probably would all be in agreement that, I mean, let's, first thing, let's not blame the US, you know, um, there's a lot of people in the West, in, in the West, in, the, in Europe, so it's all the US's fault. Well, you know, we're, our emissions are much lower than the US, but ours are still appalling over here. So, you know, the, and the Americans are doing a lot of work in some of the cities. There's a lot of great academic work going on there. So, you know, I don't want to um, denigrate a whole, a whole nation, but from a, from a national political standpoint, they're pretty appalling. Um, they're not going to do anything whilst Obama's in at the moment. If the Republicans get in next, if Romney gets in, maybe they might do something. He doesn't deny the science, but some of the other candidates in the Republicans do deny the science. You know, they, don't, they don't believe the world is made up like most scientists would suggest it is. If they get in, then I think nothing will happen there. If Obama gets back in, you know, maybe, maybe climate change objectives will be driven to some extent, but nothing like these levels. And remember, by then, it's a cumulative problem. So the situation is much worse than this. And that's a real, real issue here. People still think of it as a problem you can solve somehow in the future, but every year you fail, it makes it much more challenging. So, while some of the states are going to do quite well, and some of the cities, a lot of the cities actually, there's quite a lot of good initiatives in the cities and the states, um, they're still way short of this. And my view is that, and I was discussing this with Paul Eakins over at UCL the other day, and I spoke with a few other people, I think we have to almost park the states. Not, I don't want to, but we also, we can't, we can't do it without the states. Well, the states aren't going to get engaged in the next few years. So why not get some sort of alliance between the EU and China. China are fully aware of the impacts of climate change. They're getting a lot of the impacts of climate change. The Three Gorges Dam is virtually empty. You know, one of the biggest hydro schemes in the world, maybe the biggest hydro scheme in the world. So the Chinese are fully aware that there are big impacts of climate change, and they're going to get suffer them much more than, than we are, or the states initially. So I think if you've got the EU and the Chinese start to push together, then there's real scope for the Americans, if you like, being dragged behind. But we have to be much braver. We have to go ahead and negotiate with the Chinese, and, and just put the Americans out of it. If they want to come along, fine. But they're not, you know, it's a bit like the, U the UK and, the, and Europe. You know, let the French and the Germans sort of deal with those sort of things because the UK is just going to snipe from the sidelines as, you, as it always does. Um, and the Americans will do the same thing here. So, well, the Europeans should forget about us and we should forget about America in terms of climate change for the moment. Engage where we can, but don't rely on them. I think China and Europe could, could be a, a union that could really make some big progress. Maybe not this, this big, but you know, some moves in the right direction. And China are doing some fantastic stuff. People always say with China, it builds you know, one to one and a half coal-fired power stations every week. Every hour it puts up a wind turbine. It's got more passive solar heaters than the rest of the world put together, and it produces 80% of the world's um, um, active solar panels. So the Chinese are doing a huge amount. Their emissions are going you know, rocketing, but then so have ours in the past. They're still way, way lower emissions per capita than ours are. So, so the Chinese are doing some really good stuff on this, and they're, and they're technically, in some respects, they're technically way more advanced than we are, certainly on the manufacturing side. Non-contentious subject. Um, 
I'm fairly agnostic about nuclear power. Um, I used to live next door to one. My dad worked at Sizewell, um, well, it's now Sizewell A, the old Magnox station in, in, in the, on the East Coast, recently decommissioned and closed. Um, nuclear power is... Does anyone have an, any idea of how much of UK's energy comes from nuclear power? Any, any? 3.6% of UK energy comes from nuclear power. 3.6% of the energy we consume, 3.6%. So if we doubled that, and bear in mind we're closing it all down at the moment, about one power station, the only one power station running by 2023, 2025 in the UK. We're closing most of it down. Even if you doubled current capacity, we've got up to 7% or 8%. So a lot of people that talk a lot of rubbish about nuclear power. It is low carbon, and a lot of other environmentalists say, oh, it's not that good, you've got to get the uranium and the rest of it. But all of that stuff, is, most of that stuff, I think, is... is is dealable with. It's still a low carbon source of fuel, a source of energy. You can probably get the uranium from lots of other sources. There are other types of reactors, fast breeder and thorium. So I don't think the fuel is a, is a, uh, is a showstopper for nuclear. The big showstopper for nuclear is you cannot build them fast enough, particularly in the Annex 1 countries. There are two manufacturers of reactor cores around the globe. If the government had invested in Forge Master in Sheffield, there would have been three, but they didn't. So we have two manufacturers of, of, of um, reactor vessels. And you cannot just knock up a reactor vessel overnight and start someone else in a machine shop down the road doing it, thankfully. They're very highly technical bits of kit that you've got to get right. Um, so this assumption that well, nuclear power will do it, then ask the people, well, what's your build rates? When do you think you're going to get them built by? Then compare them with the cumulative curves you've got here, and you find there's a massive gap. That's not saying nuclear power could not be thought of as part of this, this issue, but if we think it's going to resolve this issue, people are completely misguided. So I think people at Monbiot have got it totally wrong. Yeah, well, I know Monbiot and the Linuses of this world haven't got the numbers right. They haven't thought about the build rates and related to the cumulative curves. But for the non-Annex 1 countries, they may build them much quicker. But then can you imagine the Americans and the British saying, yeah, no problem, Yemen, we'll help you. Iran, Iraq, these countries. You know, they're the countries that need nuclear power because they're rapidly ramping up their energy systems. So, you know, the people who need it, we're going to stop them having it, and we don't need it, we'll probably build a few. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's a low-carbon source of energy, but it cannot solve that problem, but it might be part of the picture. Um, yeah. I, I do think there's something to be used to say about that. I, I, I mean, I don't go to them. I was going to go to the Copenhagen one, but it's such a fiasco, and we couldn't get in. Um, despite the fact we were there, for the, we should be booked in for the second, the second from Men Day, and one of the most important days of it, but you know, it's just, it's just to get into the, into the centre. But I don't go because you've got the fire I think if they were made much smaller, that, that would be helpful from a public perception point of view. Um, I do think that they, they have the chance to achieve something. Um, they certainly bring the things to the fore once every year. Um, at the moment, they've not done very much. Do I think they can be improved? Yes. Do I think that they're important? Yes. Do I think that they're the only game in town? No. I think we have to find other things that run alongside them. But we do. The EU has a whole lot of policies and structures that have nothing to do with the UNFCCC. UNFCCC. So we have to sort of put... We almost have a portfolio of anything we can try would be now. But I think the idea of saying we shouldn't have it, as some people have argued, I think is a mistake. I think we need to have UNFCCC, but, but there are, we should not use that as an excuse for not doing lots of other things as well. And a lot of other things are being done. But at the moment, it's failed like everything else. Behind you. You'll never have the undeniable ones. Um, I mean, there are, there are problems with this in the, in the... 
You can, you can say it's statistically much more significant. So the 2003 heat wave was five standard deviations away from the norm. You can't really explain it by many other ways. Any particular event is never a climate change event. It may have been triggered by it, it may be exacerbated by it, but you simply cannot know. It could just be a freak weather event. And you get one in one in 100 year events, you get one in 5,000 year events. I mean, they, they do occur. So if you start seeing them more regularly and you can find no other mechanism, then it looks increasingly likely that's climate change. So whether any particular jab can be linked to it at the moment is difficult. The 2003 heat wave, some people say, was linked. You can show some high correlation with climate change. Some people say the heat wave in uh, Russia last year, some Russian um, Ross Hydra, that's there, if you like, the Hadley Centre work, workers over there, they, they suggest that that could be linked to climate change. Um, I think in Darfur some time ago when they had the big change in the rainforest, people said that was linked to climate change. Some of the scientists were saying that. It's very hard to do that, and, and I think we have to be very cautious of attributing any events to climate change, because not unreasonably, other people will pull us down for it. So I think we should be much more honest about saying, you know, these are the sorts of events we expect to see a lot more of, increased in, in severity, and also it would appear from more recent work, increased in frequency as well. So both of those sort of things we expect to see more of, but we should not overplay the evidence. Any more questions? Yeah, I think we have the technology. I just don't think we can put it in place fast enough. Um, we don't need lots more technology. That's not to say the Research Council shouldn't fund research and universities looking at new technologies. But we don't need new technology. We, most of the technologies we need already exist today. I, I haven't had a fridge for 12 years, but I've recently bought a refrigerator um, under some pressure from my partner. Um, and the refrigerator I bought, I spent some time shopping around for it. It's the most efficient refrigerator in Europe. Uh, it didn't cost me much more than a lot of the other refrigerators that are out there. It's made in Germany. Uh, it's an A double star. There's no A triple star ones out there. It, uh, the way I've got the, I've got the temperature set a bit higher than normal is 80 kilowatt hours a year. Most fridges are somewhere between 300 and 600 kilowatt hours a year. This had almost no price premium. It's dramatically less emissions than most of the other fridges that are out there. And it's a normal size fridge, not a huge one. That's a technology we've had for years. There's nothing fancy about these technologies. So we're awash with these technologies in, in, in domestic appliances, in cars, and all these other things. But Putting them in place is important, but then you have to make sure we don't use more of them. That's the, it's the growth issue. The technologies themselves are, can get more and more efficient, and are then historically have got more efficient. The problem is we consume more of them. So you've got to have the policies in place that stop the process of, of increased consumption in some way or another, or move it to different modes. Um, so I don't think you can do it with the technologies alone. Um, but the technology exists for us to do what we need to do on the technology side, but there'll be a big gap on the behavioural side every time, and you, we can't get away from that. And the supply technologies, the ones that actually make the energy, particularly for electricity, take so long to put in place, we simply don't have the time frame to put those there. But the demand technologies, the big changes could happen very quickly, and we can do that when we buy something. Or not buy it, even better. Okay, you choose.
Okay. Quite a challenging final question there. Um, well, my, my, my reading of that was look, talking about the, the credibility, the, the credibility of, if you like, the predictions of the scientific community and also the credibility of, if we like, again, the predictions of the economic community and, and how, important are, are, how important is that credibility. Um, okay, right. That, those, right, firstly, remember that there's two different things. The, the scientific community is trying to evaluate a physical world, which we can't change, if you like. I mean, it's the laws of physics, we're trying to understand them. That's what we're trying to do. The economists are not doing that. The economists are relating to a world that, that is our constructed world. Now, there's, there's some physical constraints to that as well. Um, so, from a science point of view, I think that there is the, the credibility is, is good for the basic science, and there are different bits of it, this. The basic science is very straightforward and relatively simple and pretty much high, very high credibility and pretty much unquestioned. The part of the science that is questioned much more are the models. Now, the actual modeling processes are very, very complex. They're still basically Newtonian models, but they're new, extremely complex models. Over the years we've been playing with them now, they appear to be looking better than we initially thought, than they initially were. And we can test those occasionally when other events have occurred, like um, Pinatuba and so forth. You can see some of the changes when, you, when a volcano goes up. Do your models predict the changes in temperature if you put all of the emissions in from the volcano? And yes, they seem to work reasonably well. We must not overplay the, the robustness of the models, but the tests we've done on the climate change models suggest that they give you a good indication of the sort of directions you're moving in. But as I tried to show there, there are still big ranges in them. So for instance, for two degrees centigrade, if you look at AR4, the IPCC AR4, the cumulative values for, for 450 parts per million concentration range from about 1,300 billion tons, gigatons, to 2,200. That's a big range. You know, one, one is almost twice the other, nearly. But that's not a problem for policymakers. They all tell you for the policymakers, you've just got to do everything you possibly can, whether you're at the 1300 range or the 2200 range. So the scientific uncertainty, I, I, I don't think, is a problem from the policy perspective and what we need to do. That's not so we shouldn't hone it down, make it more, be more careful about it. The area of science where I think there is a lot of uncertainty and the credibility, quite rightly, is questioned, is on the regional models. So we can get a good idea for the globe, but trying to say what's going to happen in the Horn of Africa, in Ghana, in India, or China, let alone what's going to happen in, you know, down the bottom of, um, where are we, Kingsway. You know, the, you know, the, it's very hard to sort of work out with any accuracy um, what's going to happen at, at a regional level. Now, th that is hugely important, particularly for the development community, because the, the local implications of climate change could be enormous and way off the averages. So that side, we really need to tighten up on the science, but it's much more complicated than the global side. And I think we're not, we should not overplay what we know about that. It's not much. We also don't know very much about precipitation. So we know a lot more about temperature. It's much easier to model temperatures, even regionally get some idea of temperatures. But precipitation, well, you know, very, very challenging. Much, much more difficult to do. So at the moment, you just have to say there's a lot of uncertainty on the precipitation. Think of it, it could get drier, it could get wetter. Um, and the precipitation is hugely important for development issues because it's the precipitation at the lower temperatures that's important for agriculture. As the temperatures go up, the temperature becomes a big factor. But at the lower temperatures, it's the changes in rainfall that matter. For the economists, well, this is a different issue altogether. And, and I'm not particularly interested in the economic models that we've had so far looking at this because they're used to using old-fashioned ways. Of, they're saying, if the future is like the past, well, the future has never been like the past. Um, I don't think why we should do it, I think we should think it'd be again now. And I've asked many economists who work on some of these areas, can you hindcast for me? Run your model from 1950 and see what happens. Well, I'll give you nothing like today. So I'm not very impressed with a lot of the economic models. I don't even take like a lot of the theories that we're using for dealing with climate change. 
Um, that's not to say economics has a huge amount to offer to, to understand these issues, but I don't think economic modelling approaches are particularly helpful. I think political economy has much more to offer. Probably ecological eco economics has a lot to offer. And the standard economic models are useful for companies and for small niche activities. So it might tell you something about some parts of the emissions trading scheme. But, but that's all. So I, I think the economics has to be much more humble in what it is trying to achieve. Um, and I would not believe the predictions of any economist who's trying to make long-term you know, predictions of what's, what's actually likely to happen, because it's, it's incumbent on what we do. It's not a physical process. It, you know, it, what we change will change that process. I don't know if that answers it. I hope, I hope someone might. Well, thank you so much. I think we all learned a lot today and um, have a lot that that we'll be thinking about when we think about international development and also our own lives. So. Thank you. Thank you very much.